Hey listeners, Asher here with Unfeigned Christianity. I am excited to have my friends Daniel and June Pollard on the podcast today. I've asked them, what would you like the church to hear about what it's like being black in America and in conservative Anabaptist churches? And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. They, We have been working mutually together with the Restorative Faith Group. That's a, a Facebook group that has gotten together to try to provide a Christian response, Christian perspective, Anabaptist perspective on the race conversation that we've been thrust into. If we weren't aware of it, if we weren't a part of it already, we've been kind of thrust into that in 2020. And so go check out Restorative Faith on Facebook. There's been different live events. Recently had one on abortion and adoption. Daniel and June have been a part of that, and so I just wanted them to come on. They've been involved in ministry, various ministry, and speaking across the U.S., across largely conservative Anabaptist churches, and so I thought they could share some pretty insightful perspectives for us as not just lay people interacting in the conservative Anabaptist world, but as people who've, who've had a place of influence, who've been across many different churches. One of the things I hope we can do with this episode is, is hear their grief, I think, is maybe, I don't know how they would say it, but disappointment when friends of theirs, ministry acquaintances of theirs, share around Candace Owens videos or you name it, but have never asked them about their experience. I don't sense bitterness or frustration from Daniel and June, more just disappointment and grief. And, and I think it's crucial that if we have black brothers and sisters in our lives, we ought to talk with them before we start sharing out our perspectives or resources that we think the world needs to hear. We should talk about the people that are in our lives. Talk with the people. Obviously, let, let's go educate ourselves outside of our friends. Let's not expect them to explain everything for us. There's a lot of good resources out there where we can learn about what it's like, what is racism, what is systemic racism, how can the church, how has the church been a part of it, how can we be a part of the solution. But we should, at the very least, also be hearing the stories of our friends. And, and so I hope that, that we can hear that in this conversation as well. One of the things I'm doing now, I've recently started, is I have a YouTube channel where I am also posting these episodes. So I do these episodes, these interviews over Zoom, and I record them, and then I put the audio on the podcast, and you may be listening to this. Or you can go to YouTube, just Asher Whitmer, and subscribe to that channel and you'll get these episodes via video and you can see our facial expressions or whatever you want to see. There will also be other videos. It's my wife and I have a YouTube channel. It's Asher Teresa Whitmer and that's kind of where I was doing some, putting some videos on YouTube. I've made a specific channel now for the blog and for podcasts and stuff. That's Asher Whitmer. It's just a profile picture of me. So if, you, if you're into video, you prefer video, go check that out on YouTube. I'm sure there will be other 
kinds of videos that come out as well, not just podcast interviews. But at this point, that's that's what's on the YouTube channel. I'm transitioning some of the previous episodes that I had done that I recorded, maybe didn't share the video. Um, you'll see those coming on the channel over time as well. Also, if you enjoy the show and you want to support it, go check us out on patreon.com forward slash Asher Whitmer. You can support for as little as $5 a month and receive access to extra bonus content. And be sure and check out coreysteinermusic.wordpress.com as he is the artist behind the intro and outro music on this podcast. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Daniel and June Pollard. Right. It is good to have on the podcast today with me, um, Daniel and June Pollard from, I am familiar with them somewhat from New York City, but you guys are now in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Ohio, right? Yep. Yeah. Thank you guys for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. <laughs> we, uh, we've kind of connected. I remember you daniel sharing a well i think you guys were at our house years ago i do not remember that i would have mm-hmm. i would have been young um our, in minnesota i think it was and but i remember you sharing at a youth rally in at kitchy pines okay back in well i forget what year that was 2006 2005 somewhere around there i mm-hmm. think and that was kind of a I think that was when I first heard of Daniel Pollard. And then later our family spent some time at, at the long-term orientation in New York city. And I remember meeting you guys there a little bit, but more recently we've, we've been involved mutually been involved in the restorative faith group mm-hmm. on Facebook and some of the live events there. And, and so I've really come to appreciate you guys as a couple, just a distance virtual interaction that we've had. Um, you, you both embody a love for Jesus, a love for people. And I can sense that and really appreciate that. Um, why don't, yeah, why don't you guys just tell us for people who may not be familiar with you? I don't know if my listeners are familiar with you or, or not, but just kind of share like your background, your story, your, the ministry you guys have been involved in and so forth. Okay. Well, as I begin my story all the time, I, I tell folks that many, many years ago, men and women were taken from Africa and they were brought to the Caribbean islands, South America, North America. Some were dropped off in the island of Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago. And my great-great-great-grandparents would have come from India on my mother's side. Because when slavery was abolished, they needed workers to come and take care of the sugar plantation, the citrus. So they brought workers from India to the island of Trinidad. 
my great grandparents on my on my father's side would have come from Africa, but my mother's side came from India. Hmm. So I have a little bit of both blood, uh, the Indian blood and the African blood. Growing up as a young man in the island of Trinidad, we had some little bit of racial tension between the East Indians and the Africans. Hmm. One of the problems was that the East Indian came as indentured laborers. So they had were, were given land, free land after they worked for a period of time, while the African slaves were just given nothing at all. So there was a problem with one group of people having much and the other group having nothing. So there was some tension and there was some political strife and racial strife in the country. Well, we, uh, at a very young age, I understood what it was a little bit. We didn't have much of the racial tension among the Caucasians until 1970. In 1970, there was a black power revolution in the island of Trinidad. And what happened is that there was a lot of oil in Trinidad at the time. So the big companies like Esso and Texaco and Shell were in the island of Trinidad. And they lived in the more richer neighborhood, the people who were management of the oil companies. And working in the banks were more people of lighter color. So there was a color problem. If you had a light skin, you know, you got a better job. If you were darker in color, there was a problem. So in 1970, there was a revolution there, a black power revolution. And that's when I first began to get aware of some of what happened in the U.S. Started reading and listening to different things from Martin Luther King, from the Black Panther movement and everything else. And that's when I was aware of that. While things went on in life, later on, I met a young lady by the name of June. And that is 45 years ago, we've been married. Uh, we have six children. And uh, we, we left Trinidad. The first time I came to the U.S. was in 1982. Back then, I loved the nightlife, the party, the women's, the drugs. And I loved New York City because it, it gives all that I needed in the flesh. It satisfied that need. So I moved to New York. I went to New York City and enjoyed it there. But my wife was saved, and she didn't want to be a part of what I was. But she wanted to be a part of the marriage. But she felt that she needed to stay with her husband. And I'll let her share her part. Um, your I, 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 I too came from a single parent home. I grew up with my mom. Um, I grew up with one other sibling until I was 12, 11. And then my mom had two more children. So, um, let's see. Um, I grew up Catholic and... Mm -hmm. When I was 26, um, one of my co-workers who was a Christian invited me to um, tent meetings, revival tent meetings. But um, just before this, I really, my life wasn't going well, our marriage wasn't going well, and I really had a deep desire to know God in a better way, in a deeper way than I experienced in the Catholic Church. So she had some people praying for me. She invited me to church. I accepted Christ and, um, you know, it's true what, what it said. My life was never the same again. Hmm. Um, 
so we moved, as he said, to New York and uh, he, he came, we both came up on vacation in 1988 and then um, I went home and came back in 89 and he stayed. So from that time on, we have been in this country. Oh, okay. So Maybe you, I should, uh-huh, sorry. Uh-huh. Were you, had you come to Christ before moving to New York? Yes, I okay. came to Christ in Trinidad. So I was saved seven years before he was saved. Would that, when he talked about how you wanted to stay in the relationship, even though in the marriage, even though you didn't want the life that he was pursuing, would that have been from your walk with Christ or just kind of your own personal desire for future? No, um, I would say this. My mom was a, she lived a very hard life and I saw with her a tenacity and um, not giving up easily. But also at the point that I was at, I really sought the Lord and I had even Mm -hmm. sent a letter home to my pastor to ask his advice of whether I should stay in New York and continue that Mm -hmm. stay in the marriage. But before I could even get his answer, the Lord clearly told me through a word from Psalm, from the Psalms, that he will perfect that which concerns me. Wow. And that I was supposed to stay. And that's what I followed. And then while being in New York City, she was listening to Christian radio and Christian television because she was afraid to go into a church because there were so many cults. You had... um, Jim Jones that took a lot of people to Guyana mm-hmm. and died. And then they were Irish, Irish? Um, David, David Corish went out to Texas. And, you know, there was a lot of different religions that we believed to be cults. And we didn't want to be a part of that. She didn't want to be a part of that. So she went and just had Christian television. Until one day she was in the subway in New York City, Broadway Junction, and she saw a man... Uh, selling Bibles and giving out free tracts. And she thought if she would get me an NIV Bible, because in the island of Trinidad, all they read was the King James. They felt if the Apostle Paul read the King James, then it was good for anyone else. That's only a joke anyway. (laughs) Anyway, she asked the man, and he didn't have a King uh, NIV Bible. So he said, if you give me your phone number and your name, what would you do? He would would bring the Bible to my house and drop it off for me. And I did. I gave it to him and I walked away. His name was Dale Charles. And I I, I gave it to him and I walked away and I thought, I freaked out. I said, I gave a strange white man in New York City my name and address. That's crazy. So I prayed that he would lose it if he was not a good person. (laughs) Obviously, he didn't. Actually, several years ago, he did give me that same piece of paper with my name and address on it. Oh, wow. So, as time went on, he brought the Bible for her. And he came with a girl from Jamaica. And uh, here they were. They came and invited my wife to church. Well, she thought it looked like nice people. And then the Sunday morning, she decided to go take a look at this church. It wasn't too far away. And then she got there, and it was a Mennonite church. Hmm. Mennonite. We knew about the Chalkadites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, but <laughs> never Mennonites, because there were no Mennonites in Trinidad. She went. It was different. The man with white shirts and black pants, and then 
the song leader got up and blew a little something. And, you know, and they started and mm-hmm. she was saving a Pentecostal church. It was different. But there was a couple of black people and there was a couple of brown skin and there was some from Guyana and there was a mixed church. Uh, so she thought it was good. Hmm. So we, so she continued going there and she went there for a while. But then uh, one day the pastor came to my house and I had seen him a couple of times and he rang the doorbell and he came and he told me he wanted to share Jesus Christ with me. I love an argument. I love I mean, if you're wearing a, a black shirt, I want to tell you it's gray. So he came and he started telling me about Jesus. Well, I had read about Jesus many years ago when I was growing up in a home. Um, I used to read the Bible every day for the lady of the home because she could not read nor write. So I knew some things in the Bible. But then I knew there were two types of Christians. There were the one with a big Bible on Sunday and a very mean-looking face. Like Jesus, I love and no one else. And then there was the other set that would come to me, with me, and party and drink and smoke, and then Sunday morning to go to church. And I didn't want to be any one of those. But that night, he asked me a question that changed my life. If you would die, where would you spend eternity? And I started thinking about it. Well, later on, I did pray to receive Christ, and the journey began. And the journey didn't last too long, because a couple of months later on, I got a Huh? I, I, I got a, an invitation to move to New Jersey to uh, uh, run a business. And I thought, okay, we'll go. And we got there and it was different. There was the white churches and the black churches. We've never known of the white church and black in New York City. In the island of Trinidad, you had the churches were mixed with the East Indians and the, the lighter color and the darker color people. So this was different. And then the guy that came to turn on our light, our phone told us about his church. We never heard about it, but we thought, well, maybe the Nazarene church is close enough to the Mennonite church. So we started going to the Nazarene church. There was one other black family, well, one black woman, and she had a grandson, but the only black folks in that church. But I look around and there were black people all around the community and there were white people in the community, but I never understood why on Sunday morning there was a little more of a racial look. So we went there for a while, and then uh, the man who had turned the phone on invited us to church, and we went in, it was all-black church. Wow, there's all-black and there's an all-white. There's a Pentecostal church, a little different, but not wrong. We went there for a while, and then we continue on there, and then we went to another church, and. And there were some problems there, and we decided to go back to New York. So we prayed about it and fasted about it and prayed about it, and we moved back to New York City. It was very difficult at first living in that community. As a matter of fact, before we left, we had a worship service once every three months with people from all different backgrounds. The SMBI chorus would come, the black churches, the First Baptist, Second Baptist, Pentecostal, and it's called Jesus Celebrate. And there was a mixture, like so different. And we enjoyed that. So I got to know a lot of the white, black pastors, the Korean pastors, the Filipino pastors. And that was a good experience for us. You want to continue on here? Well, <coughs> we moved back to New York. We got involved in ministry. 
um, plugged into the church. You know, we, we were part of the church for two years before we moved to New Jersey. We lived in New Jersey for seven years. Then we moved back to New York, plugged into the church, um, was involved in a lot of ministries there. And that is where we remained. Um, Daniel um, was first on the leadership team, then became one of the associate pastors. And that's where we remained until we moved two years ago. But then something happened. 9-11 happened. The towers came down. And then people came to see the towers and Christian Aid Ministry came into New York City and asked if they can help. And I told them what I was doing at the time was leading groups in the city. And we would sing and pray for people and people would cry and we thought, so Christian Aid Ministry uh, got uh, 225,000 CDs and tracks, and I was in charge of doing that ministry. Every day, groups would come, busloads. 40 groups came in two and a half months. Oh, wow. And that began a good ministry, but my eyes began to open because now we were being invited to different parts of the country into South Carolina, North Carolina, and we started traveling. But then in the back of my mind, after reading all that I knew about and reading the stories that I knew about, we were always a little careful in driving through some of these towns, and especially in Alabama and South Carolina, because we had heard about the prejudice down there. We had heard about the racial tension down there. So it caused us to many times want to ask the question, What's really happening? Maybe I go in a little bit and share with you some of the stories that we had. And I believe that was the next thing we were going to talk about. Yeah. I, I remember being in Mississippi. And while being in Mississippi, uh, I went for a wedding. The lady of the house was a Mennonite uh, family. Told me her son is no longer Mennonite. It's okay. He goes to another church. And I said, well... Maybe I can go tomorrow. She said, no, you can't go. I said, why can't I go? She said, well, this is the South. I said, does it mean that people from the North can't come to church in the South? I knew what she was getting at, but I wanted her to say it. Hmm. And she went around and around and around trying to tell me, but never wanted to say because I was black. It was an all-white church. Eventually, she, she broke down and told me, you being a black man wouldn't be invited in that church. Hmm. And I said, I need to talk to the pastor. So her son called the pastor and told him there was a man here who would like to talk with you. And I'm thinking the wedding is in about two hours and the pastor is coming over to talk. And he came and he told me he came from the army. He was a pastor in the United States Army. And the only thing he knew was green. Everything was green. There was no black and white. But when he came to this church in Mississippi, they told him, don't allow the black people to come. The deacon sat him down and they said, when the black people come, they will bring more and more and more, and eventually they'll take over the whole church. And I said to him, great. Then maybe what you should do is start a lot of churches like that. He didn't think it was funny. But then I told him, I said, tomorrow morning I'm going to come to church, and I want to give the deacon a big hug and tell him Jesus loves you and me also. And my wife says, no, you're not going to do that. Maybe she can share a story for you also. About, what uh, what are we on to now? What um what year would that have been? 
Oh, uh, what's your name? Got married that year, right? Stolfus. Two thousand three or four. Wow. So since two thousand, like, this is when you were told you would not be invited. In the- right. Sure. Right. Wow. Yeah. Right. Because of, um, you know, that's when we started to really get out into the mm-hmm. country. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, just for just for the our audience, um, one of the things that I wanted Daniel and June to talk about is just I knew I knew they had experience in ministering in Anabaptist churches, but even I think other churches as well. And yeah. and um and so just wanting to hear what their experience as as a black family has been like because there there is you know the the racial conversations are so politicized, and sometimes we hear people talk about racial tensions or whatever, and we think, oh, that's just that's just a lie from the left or something. And it's helpful to understand real life, everyday people, like some of the experiences that they have experienced. And so, yeah, June, what 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 did it? What was your experience, especially as a? Go for it. Before she would say something, I just want to say that ninety-nine percent of the churches we went to, we were the only black family. My daughters would sing, and I would preach, and my wife would share sometimes the ladies' class. So we were among, I would say, ninety-nine percent were all white Anabaptist churches. Yeah. Um. Mm. I think it's important to note that for the most part, uh, we didn't look for it and it wasn't that um, in your face. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I think um, as as Anabaptist people, we hide what we really think. Hmm. We don't show it um, out front as clearly. Um, There was one home I know we stayed in that I felt uncomfortable in because there was just something about the way in which we, um, the lady of the house and we related, that was off. But for the most part, that was not my experience. You know, I was very comfortable. Um, However, it becomes clear when things like your daughter or son is pursued by one of their children Hmm. or it may not be necessarily the parents. Sometimes it was the grandparents that thought that that was not allowable, that the Bible didn't talk about that, that the Bible spoke out against that. And that is not something that should happen. So Daniel likes to say, it's easy for you to say that, I could be your brother, but be a brother-in-law, it's a whole different story. Um, One of the more blatant situations happened when someone asked me, how did I know when to wash my children, to give them a bath? And I said, what do you mean? And the person said, well, um, when our children are dirty, we can see it on their skin but your children are already black. So how do you know when to give them a bath? 
So that was an interesting, I was taken aback at first, you know, <laughs> but you answered as kindly and politely because, you know, you don't want to be the mad black woman. So you have to be kind and answer calmly as you can. Yeah. Can you, can you uh, explain that a little bit? What do you mean you don't want to be the mad black woman? So well, if, <laughs> is that an impression um, that people yes, take it's an on? Impression, with the, it's yeah. an impression a lot of people have of black women, especially black women who are assertive and know where they are and who they are. Mm-hmm. And um, they think we come off aggressive or forward or don't know our place. So, you know, that's something you don't want to portray. I think was one of the experience we had. Uh, we were in South Carolina for meetings. And the guy that picked me up at the airport, uh, you know, we talked a bit. And then later on in the day, we were talking and he said, what do you think about, uh, you know, the black folks and the white folks in one church? And he said, well, I don't know. You tell me. What do you think? He said, well, I think it's okay for us to go into the black community and share the message of Christ with them. And when they get saved, they need to stay in that community. I said, why couldn't they come to your church? Said, well, no. See, they worship differently. And they, they, would, uh, they would change the whole way that our church does things. I said, so is it okay to just get them saved and leave them there? So I think that's the best. I said, what happened when you get to heaven? Do you think it's only Anabaptist white folks going to be in heaven? Or do you think he has a preparation for us for when we get to heaven so we can live with all different people? I don't know if we're going to be black or white in heaven, but if it is, are you ready for when you get to heaven? And uh, he's, he's took, he took a little while. And then I explained to him how difficult it is for us, you know, driving around. Even he had loaned us a car. And it was very uncomfortable at times, you know, when you would see the police, you had to slow down, even though you were going to ride speed limit. Because at the back of your head, you have heard many stories. And, and at times you were, you were pulled over and you know the routine. And even with the routine, you could still run into trouble. And so that was one of the things that even though I was a minister in the Mennonite church, Our family was living a good, godly life at the time, not perfect. But the police officers, we knew, didn't know who we were. But the first thing they look at is the color of your skin. Hmm. And so you have to be very, very careful in the way you do things. Also, when you're among a group and someone make a joke about black folks, sometimes you wonder, do I speak now? And if I say something, would they think I'm being racist? Or do you think my skin is too thin? So there were times you had to know when to speak up and when to be quiet. Uh, so I think those were some of the, the experience. And we have many more, you know, as we've traveled, like June said, we, have, we never looked for it mm-hmm. because I was just in the mindset of God had given me a call to preach the gospel. And it didn't matter what color people came. Yeah. W- would you guys say that if a lot of it was rather than being malicious, like people intentionally thinking, Oh, they're, they're black. Um, I mean, obviously the, the comment about the, the babies washing them 
is pretty close, but is a lot of it just kind of ignorant, like just having absolutely no clue how a joke about a person is going to feel if a person of that kind, whether it's a joke about a black person or a joke about, I mean, even, even we get that between the jokes between men and women, right? Right. If one or the other is there, they're kind of like, what is it? Does it feel aggressive and malicious or does it feel more like just ignorance in, in churches? I'll let you go first. You know, we have excused it as ignorance um, many times because we know too that many of the Anabaptist churches are not close to not all, but many of them are not close to black um, populations and they do not um, relate with black people. But um, whereas we understand that there is ignorance and we can deal with that, I wanna say at this point in time though, I wanna encourage our Anabaptist um, friends to begin to really learn, mm -hmm. to find yourself seeking out, um, if you can't find a person of color, but there is so much literature, there is so much information out there, learn. Because I think that is the one thing that concerns me the most, is that for conservative Mennonites, conservative Anabaptists, you do not see black people the way we really are. Mm -hmm. And if anything has to change, you can't wait until you um, live close to them, live in a in an area that has many black people as your neighbors. You can't do that. Now is the time to begin learning about us. Mm. Mm -hmm. to begin understanding that the history you know is not necessarily the total history mm -hmm. or the correct one. And so learn to know us so that you can see us mm -hmm. who God made us to be. Mm -hmm. Because what I have seen, especially from this last situation, these months mm -hmm. and four years ago, when it was in the news a lot again, there is no need to wait until it becomes on the headlines of the news to have discussions and mm -hmm. debates on mm -hmm. Facebook. Mm -hmm. But from now, to spend time understanding, learning, talking to other Black people who do not say the same things that you believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm but speak to other black people who you respect, who you might know and learn so that you will be able to see us. You know, the Lord brought this scripture to me with the situation. When he went into Simon's house and the woman came to pour the perfume on him, Simon said, if he really knew who she was, he would, that she is, is a sinner, he would not allow this. But the scripture said she was a sinner, not is. Simon mm. never saw her for who she truly was. Mm. Jesus did. Mm. 
Jesus sees us for who we really are. Hmm. And until our Anabaptist conservative friends learn to see us as who we really are, born, made in the image of Christ, people, real people, this will not change. You're good. Oh, I was just going to say, and it seems like Simon forgot who he was too. Mm-hmm. Like we, yeah. we are all, we are all sinners. I'm, I may not have, I here in Los Angeles, uh, a lot of my friends are Latino and some have been involved in gangs and, and drugs. And I may not have that background, but I have a sinful background. Amen. Amen. Yeah. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, and that's not a blanket statement that all the people that we knew had that, those tendencies. We have some really good friends who have supported us in prayer and walked with us. And I can tell that they, they really love us for who we are. But I believe just like in every place, there, there is a small minority that needs to learn. There's a small minority that needs to hear some of these things that we are saying. That when, um, you know, I was just in the church this week and I shared with them, you know, when you, to know when your children get to a certain age, like my sons especially, we have to sit them down and tell them, you know, where they can go, where they should not go. When they are approached by anyone, a police officer, the respect you need to show, you have to be so careful. Um, so I think those, those are some of the things people don't understand that we have to do that if we want to make sure that our mm. children mm. Um, may not get killed at an early age. Mm. Doesn't mean that after they do all the respectful things that they were going to go right. And I think because of the tendency of many looking at people from a, a broad perspective. For instance, I hear like people talk about what's about all the killing in Chicago. And I tell them I believe it is wrong. But a man killing another man in Chicago, either he rob it for drugs, for hate, for so he never kill another black man because of the color of his skin. But some of the murders we have had is only because of the color of my skin, which I cannot change. So I believe that is something I like people to understand. That there is bad in all, there is good in all. Mm-hmm. And when we are speaking these things, we are not trying to say we want to be superior. We just want equality. Mm-hmm. We just want the same thing that everyone else can have. For not only for us, but for our children and our children's children. And now in our, our, our Anabaptist churches, there are more and more adoption of people from different colors, whether it's from India or from Africa, from Haiti. And uh, these people who are adopting these children if they don't know now, they'll, they'll learn someday that they have to treat these children different than their biological children. Mm. Because these children will be looked upon differently. They won't be looked upon, well, this is a child that was, grew up in a Mennonite home and had all the teachings and everything else. When they're in a car with a group of other, of other um, Caucasians, they are looked upon differently than the others are in the car. And the reason I say that is because we have traveled a lot with our children and we have seen it with our children integrating with children from different backgrounds. And three, four of our children are married to Caucasians. And so people ask, well, how, what does it feel like? It never felt anything to me. I just knew that they are going into a relationship that God could keep them in 
but they will have some harder times. And they have shared some stories of the harder times some of them may have had hmm. as they go in different places in the restaurants and people look at them differently. Hmm. Yeah, I, I know this is good. I know you guys have a little bit of a time constraint this afternoon. Okay, um, continue to. You, well, you we have can go for 15 more minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I've got a bunch of questions kind of running through my mind. And just <laughs> yeah. just the the thing that my boys are raising some ruckus here in the background. I don't know if you can hear that. But um, the thing that I often think about when you share what you just did about, especially teaching your children that you're going to have to respond differently to police or or even um, that others are going to look on you differently. Um, we don't like, I, I certainly never had that talk with my dad. I've never thought about it with my boys, even in a city where we are like this area of the city, we're a minority. Right. It's, it's primarily Hispanic or, uh, Armenian in our immediate community. Um, but we still have a sense of, I don't know what the word is other than maybe the word privilege, but that might be triggering to some, but just a sense of, I can, I could sit and argue with a clerk or something about something that's done wrong in the store. Um, that kind of right. I have a right to do something or if I, I don't argue with police, but I never think about, asking if I have to reach in my glove compartment for insurance. I don't know that I've ever asked if I can do that. I just reach and get it. Um, And so that that's something that has stuck out to me. The more I hear stories like that, like yours, where that's something you have to train your children. What would you say um, in kind of morphing maybe this with one of the questions that I had shot you guys, but um what would you say to people who say, if you just behave, if, if black people would just behave right, they wouldn't get in trouble with police or kind of morphed into that. The issue in the black community is fatherlessness. Um, there's not fathers. How, how, what would your response to that be? What would, what would you say? Okay. I'll let you go first again. <laughs> Uh, we we did discuss that, Sam. Yeah. I think I'm I'm glad you said first um, about if you will only behave right, because I I don't think the main issue is fatherlessness. Um, there are a number of reports out there, even one by the CDC, that makes it clear from their own um, research. Although sometimes I don't like to use the statistics and research reports because anybody can get any research mm-hmm. report or statistic to um, validate what they're saying. But um, fatherlessness and um, they say a lack of respect for authority. You know, for us as Christians, we know that it's important to have that father figure in the home and to um, teach your children to obey authority and um, so that they will learn to obey Christ and follow him, 
right? That is on the one hand. On the other hand, the thing is that the lack of fatherlessness, and you know, we can look at those statistics and those reports and see that that um, is a myth. This is not true. But the bottom line is this. If you're a parent and your boys are not obeying you, you will be careful how you discipline them anyway, even when they disobey, because that is your role is not to abuse them because they disobey, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with those that are in authority in the land. Um, their role is to to um, to enforce the law and to protect and serve, but it's not to abuse people if they do not respect authority. That that's not how it is. Mm-hmm. Mm. And when we look at the many many examples of others who have disobeyed. Um, who have not respected the police officers and they are not killed. What are we saying? Mm. What are we saying? There are many instances of young people, of terrorists in New York City who rode on pavements, who knocked people down, who did, did this and that and was apprehended without anything happening to them. There are many instances of Kyle Rittenhouse and there was a young man recently who was on a murder spree, ended up in Pennsylvania. They were aware of the fact that he had guns in his backpack and was arrested without incident. Mm -hmm. That is not a basis to say because they won't listen because they disrespect the police, that is okay. And especially not okay for us as Christians to be believing that narrative and to be speaking that. Mm. How are we as Christians gonna say it's okay for people because they don't do what the police officers ask them to do, it's okay for the police officers to kill them Mm. or shoot them in a way that causes them to be like, like with Jake Jacobs, it's, it's, it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just wrong. Mm-hmm. And so we have to look at, um, this, I don't think this is part of this question now, but look at what it means to have a, um, a police force that understands the people they're dealing with and how to operate with them. And, you know, I have to make some disclaimers because I'm black, but I have family who are police officers. Mm. So I am not against the police. Mm-hmm. I respect them. I think they should be respected. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there is no grounds for the police officers to, um, to feel it's okay yeah. to kill people because they didn't do what they were asked. Yeah. I uh, 
I was observing a Twitter thread after the Jacob Blake shooting, and there were some cops. I didn't know them, but they they were responding, and they talked about how what they noticed from the video was it escalated from zero to sixty. He grabs the shirt and then shoots. And there's if if you're feeling comfortable to grab to touch the suspect, then there's quite a few other measures that he could have done first before shooting seven times. And so what I'm hearing you say is that there's are are any authority when dealing with rebellion needs like it doesn't justify just going to 60 zero to 60 right away like me my boy disobeying doesn't justify me just let loose in a spanking rampage on him no yeah no and i know those situations are volatile and you have split seconds to make decisions i understand all of that i discussed some mm. of that with my my cousin who is a police officer Mm. You know, so I understand all of that. Mm -hmm. But where is the place for you to shoot a person, even if you want to, in their legs, in their, you know, Mm. uh, ways in which to to disarm this person, ways in which to deal with this escalated Mm. situation, to de-escalate it and not have to kill the individual or excessive Mm. force be used Mm -hmm. in order to subdue someone. Yeah. And yeah, I'd I'd like to hear your thoughts too, Daniel. On um well one one comment that I think about with the fatherlessness is there is a rise of fatherlessness even among white people. Right. That was and, the other point. And so why why is that not used for it, it kind of frames as though only black people have this issue. It's a bit. It's an issue in America, right? It's, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that was going to be one of my points. In our, I didn't bring that up, but that that is yeah. a fact. That it is across the board, and yeah. so you know, even in homes where both parents are present, there are many times the father is absent, mm. even though his body is there. So. Mm. You yeah, well, you know, I think June explained it pretty clearly. And just like we said before, you can do everything right. I mean, you could train the children, the children could be taught all the right things, but you still can't guarantee that when they stop, it wouldn't escalate. Mm-hmm. As you know, sometimes also, you have I, I have seen it, where even myself being, being pulled over, I remember being pulled over one night in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I wasn't driving. But my uh, I had a friend was was driving, and when I was pulled over, I asked the cop, "What, what did you pull us over for?" And he didn't want to answer. Me. I said, "Why did you pull us over? I mean, we were under the speed limit, or were we over the speed limit?" And eventually, he got really angry with me, asking the question. And I thought if it was it was it was two of us was uh, African Americans, mm-hmm. and I wondered if with someone else in the car, would it be treated differently? Eventually, he told me because you were driving too slow. I said, well, if I'm driving fast, I get pulled over. I'm driving slow, I get pulled over. I got to know exactly the speed limit. The speed limit was about 35 miles an hour. We were going about 30 because we were talking, and we had just came back from doing a big banquet. So we were talking, and, you know, we were just trying to find our way. 
and we get pulled over. So things like that sometimes gets you a little bit, um, you know, he was very, he was getting very angry. And all my question was, why did you pull us over? What did we do? And I was sitting in the front seat. So, you know, I was a part of the car. And he keeps saying, well, I'm not, I'm not talking to you. I'm asking the driver for his license. Insurance. Yeah, but why? Because I'm a part of the car. And then he called for, for a backup. And some more police officers came. You know, and all of a sudden the bright lights. And, and that mm. gets you a little nervous. And, you know, sometimes you may end up saying something. And that could escalate into a lot of problems. So you have to remember to be very, very, and we try to be very respectful. I mean, I grew up without a, a dad in the home, really. I grew up without a mom in the home. And, but yet I was able to learn respect. And I know that I need to respect authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. I can think of a lot of youth who are very respectful kids and they're single parent, maybe single mom um, children. Mm-hmm. What would we, I think, I think your time is about up. What would be one, yeah, was something you long for the church and maybe even just um, the church to hear, maybe even if, if there are pastors who are wanting to br- bring this conversation up and, and talk about it in their church, how, how do they go about doing that? Or what, what is something you would, yeah, like the church in general to hear? Okay. June and I was talking about, I think she even has some things written down, so I'll let her share my thoughts and hers on how we reach out there um, into the different churches and community? Well, first of all, the, it's great when the leaders have a desire to see the situation and want to know more and begin to um, not just depend on the people of color to teach them, but to be able to start looking up and seeking out um, information, literature. Um, Like I said before, many of our Anabaptist churches are not surrounded by black communities. And many of them don't have black friends. But um, when you start getting information, then you can start seeking out um, people of color, other black ministers people of color, who can, um, who you can talk with, who you can partner with, who you can learn from. And let it not be people of color who voice the same things that you voice. If you have a black friend and they say the same things that you say, then also find another one that doesn't say the same thing that you say, that doesn't believe the same things you believe Mm. about black people. Mm. Because I've found that a lot. I've seen that a lot that a lot of um, conservative people are listening to voices that confirm what they believe rather than trying to find voices that says it differently so you can hear both sides and learn. Yeah. Can I um, ask a... Uh-huh. I, I have a question on that, and I realize our time is short, but I'm, I'm just curious. There's so much... Um, a lot of people are afraid of believing a leftist lie or narrative so like how how do people like should they read that stuff even if it sounds leftist or something too or like how how do you sort through what what is good literature and good sources or good people to listen to well i would share with you from my own experience not too long ago i had a chance to speak at a church and i um 
I wasn't planning on talking about the racial tension in the country, but it came up in the message. And um, and I shared some of the concerns like I shared with you today. And after the service was over, people came up to me and said, you know, I never thought this still exists. You know, I, I mean, we're, we're living in this bubble. Because remember, most of the places I go to in, in, in Indiana, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Virginia, and many other communities, and we, we have never been exposed to some of these things. Now, I think if you get people that you know, and I tell people many times that uh, would, would ask me about certain people on, on Facebook, I say, you know me. You know me. I don't have any message to, of hate or anger or bitterness among any color of people because I've been treated good on both sides. Ask me the question. I could tell you from my own experience. Why go to someone that would just tickle your ear? Why not come to someone you know that is not on a leftist? You know, I had a person not too long ago that I responded to and told me, they, they told me, uh, you know, they didn't know I was a part of the, the Black, Lives Black Lives Matter movement. And with all the burning and shooting and killing. And I said, I expected better from you that I thought you knew me better, mm-hmm. that I wouldn't be a part of a movement like that. I wouldn't be a part of a movement, but I still believe that Black Lives Matter. But I'm not part of the movement. And I think what happens sometimes, and especially now with the whole burning and looting and all that, it has taken away from the real, distracted from what's really going on mm-hmm. and what the main issue is. And uh, I, I believe we would get people of, uh, you know, have uh, studies on it, have uh, uh, black ministers that like, you know, that would be able to come and share some of their own stories mm-hmm. and do a study on it. I think it would help so much mm-hmm. for us to see and know. I think that leaders can do, first of all, a survey of their congregation to see where they're at, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then from that, like Daniel says, it's fascinating that Daniel and I have been with the Mennonites for 30 years and we've had very few people ask us how we feel about this. Mm. Okay, We feel like we could be a trusted voice mm. but nobody's hardly anybody has asked us. We know of several other people of color and some of our white friends who would be able to speak into the situation if leaders of churches want to know more. So there are several resources and people that they can talk with, that they can ask questions to, Mm -hmm. who they should be able to trust Mm -hmm. what we have to say and ask us questions. It's sad for me that when Daniel and I spoke in 2016, 2006 on racism in the church, if many of the churches, we spoke at a convention, Hmm. if many of the churches that was affiliated with our conference had asked us to come and share and talk to their congregations about that issue, since then, we will not be in this place now where Hmm. we're still trying to find out how to approach the issues. Hmm. Because for many of them, they, you know, the ideal thing would be to have black leadership in your church, right? Mm-hmm. So you can hear black voices on a continuous basis. But many of them don't have that. Mm-hmm. So then so reach out to those who um, 
are people of color that you know that you can trust mm. or if 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 it's not um a black husband and wife it might be a black husband and a white wife or white um husband and a black wife but those voices are very important mm. and you want to hear our voices mm-hmm. and you want to be able to um relate with us and ask questions and if we don't know we can point you to places mm. where you know people tell me about be the bridge i have not been able to research it but what i understand that? that be the bridge be, oh okay interesting i understand that's a good resource i haven't been able to research it yet myself but you know there are so many resources there are so many churches like right here in columbus there's a a, a church with a white pastor but they have black leadership and they went through a series of messages during the most painful time that were quite on point. Hmm. Reach out to these different places and hmm. try to see, you know, what you can learn. But the yeah. truth is you have to want to have a heart that wants to learn and ear to hear and the empathy to reach hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And to enter into our pain. Yeah. To hear a a story and a history that is different than what what we've come to know and like. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I I think that's the thing that personally is sometimes frustrating is whether it's people like you guys and just other black friends that I have. Uh, my aunt is black and like when I talk with them, I'm, I'm talking about Christian people. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, sometimes we as white people, it seems can, cannot understand. Like it does look like it's easy to fall in. I can see how it's easy to fall into the progressive kind of leftist movement. If you're trying to care mm-hmm. about racial social yeah. issues and it's in talking with folks like you, that I get a better perspective. This is what Christian black people feel and how they approach. And it's Mm -hmm. challenging to me. And so I just wish so many more people would um, reach out to the people, the the black friends and Christians around them. And um, yeah. The truth is the bottom line is we are called to be, Ministers of Reconciliation for Jesus, Hmm. right? Amen. And so how are we reconciling the world? How are we reconciling our Black brothers and sisters to Jesus and to ourselves if we are not prepared to reach out there, to go beyond our comfort zone, to learn about them, to care Hmm. for them, to love them, Mm. All of us who are made in the image of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is the bottom line. When we see people made in the image of Jesus, yeah. and we could love them and reach out to them and empathize with them, yeah. and want to learn more because yeah. they're made in, in the image of Jesus, mm-hmm. that makes the difference. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for coming on and sharing. I I think I'm going to be pushing you for your next appointment, but um, I I enjoyed it. I have many more questions I'd love 
yeah. talk with you guys about, but maybe sometime we'll get you out here to LA and just talk face to face. Well, we, we were we were really planning on coming out here in the fall, and then COVID came, and then all a lot of plans were changed. Yeah. Yeah. I had told your dad a long time ago we want to come out there and do one of our meal and share my story and yeah. get good encouragement. And uh, yeah, but God knows when the time will be right. Yeah. Yes. yeah we so God bless that. you and thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for, for reaching out to us. Yes. Mm. Giving us this opportunity. And, um, and for all that you have been doing to bring some reconciliation. Yes. Mm. yes. We appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for coming on and sharing and, and yeah, bless you guys. I believe you're having a meeting this evening. And yes. We'll be praying for you guys as you head off to that. Thank you. We'll be glad to chat with you again, too. Yeah.